Hello and welcome to It Takes Courage to Tell the Truth. This podcast features interviews from women around the world focusing on birth, business, sustainability, health, sex, death and money. I'm your host, Eleanor Bancroft. Hello and welcome back to the show. Today I am joined with a special guest. Um, Madeline is zooming in all the way from the United States to join us for a chat. Hey Maddie, how are you? I'm great, Ella. It's great to be here with you. You too. So you have a fascinating story and you do a lot of amazing community work and you reached out to me and I loved what you're bringing to the table in terms of conversing around this time as being women and women who are tapped in with plant medicine and herbalism. So will you talk a little bit about your story, who you are and and what you do? Sure. Yeah. So I think to really get into it, I want to talk about how I grew up in uh, Santa Cruz, California, is like what it's known now as, but originally it was Owaswa speaking Ohlone land and it still is. And um, I grew up with probably like some idea that the Ohlone people had like vanished from this place, but with a lot of education around like what they used to do here on this land. And so I was brought up with like in this very privileged place where I was like learning a lot about like traditional uses of plants. I got to spend a lot of time out in the woods growing up. Um, Here in the Santa Cruz mountains we have like the amazing redwood forest and so my life was just like exploring and playing with plants and banana slugs (laughs) when I was growing up. Um, And then as I got older um, I was probably mm, I want to say like in college (laughs) is when I really um, came to understand that the indigenous people were definitely still here and still around, but that knowledge had been sort of cloaked in my upbringing. And uh, the way that I responded to that was by getting really entrenched in uh, community organizing of all kinds. So I went to university and I did a degree program called Community Studies and basically just got a degree in activism, (laughs) I like to call it. It's the best way to explain it to people. Um, But I was mostly doing things like tenant organizing and food sovereignty organizing and a lot of racial justice writing and discourse with my peers. And those were kind of my main focuses. And I retained that connection to the natural world and that really serious respect for indigenous lifeways 
but it wasn't really my focus. Um, and I kind of just was sticking with that community organizing work and like driving myself really, really hard because that's a big part of um, at least a certain aspect of organizing culture. And then uh, I burned out <laughs> and kind of had to return to the um, like the things that had resourced me in the beginning, the plants and the spirituality that I had like kind of pulled out of the woods when I was young. <laughs> yeah. And so now I'm an herbalist and practice witchcraft and I kind of integrate those things along with a big respect for um, feminized labor and femme power. I personally identify as a non-binary femme and I put a big emphasis on feminized labor in my practice and how important that is. And so talking about witchcraft and herbalism, will you explain a little bit about like how you got involved in in that space, you know, young women who are out there that are looking for answers. I think witchcraft is one of the most powerful tools we can use as women, um, strong intention and prayer. But will you talk a little bit about your practice into that space and how you kind of moved through that journey? Yeah, sure. When I was first getting into it, I mean, when I was growing up, I was just like making potions out of like crushed geranium petals and doing things like that. And so it was something that like came really naturally. Like I, I just tended to have like a pretty mystical relationship with the natural world, especially. And I loved anything that related to magic when I was growing up. I read all the Harry Potter books. <laughs> um, and then as I got older, um, I started to like look around the internet and realize like, oh, people are doing this and, and it's like not a fictional thing at all. And so that was kind of my first introduction was like the pop culture representation of magic. Um, and then I got exposed to the work of people like Sylvia Federici, who um, she wrote Caliban and the Witch. Um, and I, I love Sylvia Federici's work and I, started to understand like the kind of the feminist foundation of witchcraft and at the time was like really coming into like a political awakening and I was like oh these things go together perfect and so through that kind of just got really into seeing ritual as a way to reconnect with my own power and also stay grounded in terms of my mental health because when I was in academia, there was like no way for me to process a lot of the things that I was learning and ritual really offered a space to, to like emotionally process all of those things um, and to deal with them, but also to stand in my own power and be like, I'm going to work against this stuff. I'm going to work in favor of a world that I want to see. Nice. And I know right now there's like such a, you know, 2020 has been such an intense political climate for a lot of people. Um, and what I've found is like, yes, people are coming together, but there's also like strong divides within people's um, ability to feel that they have autonomy to practice certain things, you know. I think witchcraft for all women is like a way that we can 
journey into ritual and ceremony without stepping on the toes of other cultures. What's been your experience with um, cultural appropriation in that space or in Santa Cruz in general? I really appreciate that you asked this question um, because this has been on my mind kind of from the beginning that I really like dove into ritual work. It's a huge issue here in Santa Cruz. Um, and I think more generally in the witchcraft community because there are so many ways that um, especially white people like myself can really enact those colonizer power dynamics when they're getting into ritual work because there's so much information available right about all of these different traditions and i think sometimes people will just sort of like jump in and be like wow this is so cool without really thinking about like wait i'm do i belong here you know like i had a lot of friends who definitely like just immediately got into ayurveda for example and were really into that and i i remember being like maybe you should think about your position as a white person before you get into this like really beautiful tradition that is not from europe <laughs> it's from india and so yeah here in santa cruz it's it's been a real issue and i think that for me personally i've always kind of thought of getting into ritual work as a way to actually connect with my ancestry because even though I think a lot of the time the tendency for especially white people like myself is to feel like we don't have any of our own healing traditions to fall back on. Like we need to go elsewhere to find something to heal us, which is a really terrible and toxic thing. Because the truth is that witchcraft has existed and plant medicine has also existed in so many different cultures for thousands and thousands of years. And the, a lot of the witchcraft that I do is inspired by my Northern European heritage. And the plant medicine that I do also is inspired by that. Like, for example, my favorite thing to make is fire cider. And um, that's like a really old time European um, tonic for cold season. So really like using your interest in those things as an opportunity to get in touch with your heritage, I think is a way to kind of go about that and balance um, the tendency towards cultural appropriation. Do you have any recommendations on where women can start in terms of researching or books that they can turn to, especially within the witchcraft element of Europe? Because I know that a lot of women, especially in the Byron Bay area and the Shire where I live, um, are struggling with trying to retrace their ancestral steps in that way, you know, and really trying to connect to that space because we we are on the other side of the world. And sometimes it feels like we're just a floating island that's not really part of, you know, what's going on in the globe and with the rest of the continents, I guess. Mm. How, how did you start that research? And, and yeah, where can you point people in that direction so that they can follow their own lineages? I do wanna say that I, I will, I would say that um, largely the like, kind of the traditional witchcraft space, I think is actually fairly dominated by at least Wicca, um, which is like, you know, comes from like old, like pre-Britain times. 
Um, and so that is actually fairly accessible for people and was kind of my first um, introduction to European witchcraft was just, that's kind of what everybody gets served. And, and then after you get into that, you realize there are other traditions that come from other places. Um, aside from that, the most helpful thing for me has been researching folk tales and like folk traditions from all of these different cultures. It's hard because like the history of Europe, much like the history of the Western, like the rest of the globe is um, full of a lot of, you know, like these people conquered these people and then this tradition went away, you know, so it's sort of hard to trace. Um, but like looking back at the folk tales that have endured has really helped me like get a sense of like, okay, this is what these people thought magic was, you know? Yeah. You know, there's something coming up definitely for me around really wanting to encourage all women to like pursue their magic and find that and, mm -hmm. and ritual and ceremony are places where we can deeply connect to ourselves, but also connecting to plants and the earth is another powerful force that women can tap into. I guess there's just a lot of sensitivity at the moment into like what directions to go, but how do you kind of move forward teaching herbalism and working with the native plants on your land? Mm -hmm. Thank you for asking that. That's another really good one. Um, because it's definitely really fraught. Um, yeah, I live here on Awaswasaloni land and here um, I'm lucky that there is the Amamutsin tribal band is the group that represents that group as well as um, many of the other like Southern Ohlone peoples have joined that group. And so they're present here and they're doing a lot of really beautiful work. Um, they have a couple different like land restoration sites. They have a land trust and they have a lot of like cultural programming and they also like currently have a campaign to um, stop this one piece of land in our area um, from being turned into like a gravel mine. So that campaign is called Protect Hurry Stock and I encourage people who are listening to check that out. Um, but so they're here and they are basically like they're doing all of this work with plants in the earth and I think for me to be a practitioner here and to be to be teaching about plant medicine, it's important for me to first of all acknowledge that they're here, and of course, and then also do my best to be in a good relationship with them. And so, currently, for me, what that looks like is I donate about 10% of the proceeds of every class that I teach to their land trust project, and. I also work to kind of like get the word out about what they're doing, their campaign. I go to their events. Um, I really appreciate all of their work and I'm really grateful that they are working so hard to steward this land that is theirs because I recognize that I also have a stake in that. The more that they succeed, um, the more I do too, right? <laughs> because we all, we all get to be here and enjoy the plants if they succeed in what they're doing. What do you find is the like um, common kind of mainstream view of the First Nations people in, in and around the West Coast of the States? Mm, I think 
the mainstream view probably is that possibly this is changing now, but I definitely grew up with the assumption that largely they were gone. Most um, First Nations people, Indigenous people on the West Coast are not federally recognized, um, including the Amamutsun tribal band. They're not fed federally recognized. And so I think that that creates this misconception that they're not here, they're gone. The Indigenous people who still do exist on Turtle Island are in like on reservations in New Mexico or Oklahoma. Like that's kind of the preconception that people have. And so when you're working with plants and ceremonial practices, how do you specifically look at like, um, like the unsettlingness and the whiteness around those spaces? Mm -hmm. it's, it's definitely really important to first just acknowledge that herbalism is regrettably, I'd say, especially Western herbalism, which is kind of the type of herbalism that most people sort of pop into when they start studying is a very white space. Like most disciplines, we have like our old white guy masters. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of like who everybody reads and who everyone learns about first. And so I think it's important to like, just first point that out and say like, okay, this is an issue. Like, why is this such a white occupied space? Um, and then also think about how like a lot of the plants we work with we didn't originally, you know, white people, I'm saying we, but I mean white people, didn't originally like bring those over from Europe. Um, like California poppy, we definitely didn't bring that from Europe, you know, but that is like a widely used plant in Western herbalism. So I think it's, it's really important to recognize that a lot of the plants we use, originally we learned those uses from indigenous people or from black people too. There's a lot of different plants that were originally used in black folk herbalism that are now part of the Western herbalism Materia Medica. So first just acknowledging those things is really important. Um, yeah, and then also I really like to talk to students about wildcrafting because wildcrafting is a huge issue and um, that is another place where kind of confronting wildcrafting means confronting those colonial dynamics of entitlement. And so I try to talk to people about like, why do you feel the need to take this plant? Um, couldn't someone else or somebody who is not a human use this? Um, what's gonna happen to the plant if you don't take it? You know, um, really there's like a whole list of questions and I think just encouraging people to think more instead of staying in that mindset of entitlement and be more critical of that mindset is another way to kind of work on unsettling when it comes to plant medicine. And so would you suggest more that like somebody tend to a garden, grow their herbs, if they're going to pursue, you know, um, a space of being a witch or a herbalist to not necessarily go out and wildcraft to actually just tend to a garden and commit to that? Yes, yes, exactly. And I really appreciated your previous interview with Hannah Forrester, where she was talking about growing all of these plants and like her mom growing plants and stuff. And I, I really think that's the way to go because that's how you really get in relationship with plants. And that's how plant medicine works. It's, it's building on those relationships. And the more relationship we have, um, 
and the more meaning we have in what we do, I think the more we are able to kind of slow down and resist the white colonial capitalist dynamics that can otherwise crop up. And so you yourself, do you have a garden? Yes, <laughs> I do. What do you and I'm very proud of it. in your garden? Um, I, I have like a whole hodgepodge. <laughs> I live in like probably the most urban neighborhood of Santa Cruz. And so it's just like a little plot. Um, but right now I have feverfew and a couple different kinds of mint. Um, I've got lemon balm and lavender, calendula. Yeah, and rhubarb. Right. <laughs> nice. Mm -hmm. And currently it's summer where you are in Santa Cruz. So what is um, a really good herb to be growing at this time? Or what are you using or finding that you're using a lot of during this season? Mm. Well, I recently went to a community garden and I harvested a bunch of mullein. Um, and mullein is, uh, are you familiar with mullein at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> you're nodding. Yeah. Um, I yeah. usually smoked it because I heard it's good for purifying the lungs. And that's um, mm -hmm. mostly what I've used it for. But I also have used it, I think, in a yoni steam. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's awesome. It's great for the mucous membranes and it is especially wonderful for the lungs. And it's used for a lot of people who have like chronic lung issues, like people who with uh, who have asthma. Um, mullen is a great ally for them, but it's also really wonderful um, right now because of COVID and um, because here in California, we have um, wildfire danger is rising by the day, and usually in like late fall or, or like late summer, early fall is when wildfires start. And so I've been making a lot of preparations with Mullen just to kind of think about my community and like what people are going to need during that time to like really strengthen and protect their lungs. And so what do you do with the, what do you do with the Mullen? You make tinctures or? The best way to take it is actually tea, um, which is kind of sweet because it's like the simplest herbal preparation. And I love that it's like so accessible. Yeah. But you just take the leaves and, the leaves are quite big and you just chop them up finely and you'll dry them for a few days, like in a paper bag on top of a shelf or something. And then you're ready to make tea whenever you need. Beautiful. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, so you speak a lot about the idea and the importance of rest during your work as well. Um, you know, you do real work and community organizing. We talk a little bit about um, the nature of the world that you and me have both grown up having a, a pretty Western society and what we focus on as success and why rest is important in your work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely would say that rest is not prioritized. Often when we are, when we're working on anything, rest and we're like running out of time, rest is kind of the first thing that goes out the window, right? Um, which is really unfortunate because sleep is so important to the body. I mean, um, as somebody who works with both physical and spiritual health, it's, it's a huge deal to both of those things. Like it helps our whole body reset. It's really important for the liver and the brain on a physical level. And emotionally, it's extremely important to get enough sleep because it kind of helps, um, helps you 
process your experiences. And so being well rested is really important. And also um, one of my favorite sayings is resting is subversive. Um, I'm a huge fan of the NAP ministry project that is run by Patricia Hersey. Have you come across that project at all? It's no, really awesome. Enlighten yeah. me, enlighten me. Yeah, so it started as like this performance art project and I think she's based out of Atlanta. Um, but she is, she's a black feminist who her whole, the nature of her project is basically she just wants to encourage black women to get more rest. And she has like a beautiful body of work. I can send you a link to her stuff. She's really awesome. But I found it hugely inspiring because she talks about how, um, how important it is for black women to rest and resource themselves. Because, you know, when you're dealing with oppression, that makes you really tired. And, and also like the nature of oppression means that black women have less access to rest, right? and kind of like oppression functions to take rest away from you. And so I've been really inspired by that project and just have done a lot of thinking around how rest is subversive. It's anti-capitalist, it's against productivity culture. And the more we rest, the more we can resource ourselves to really like when we wake up, be ready to get back into the fight or the community work that we do we can really like show up with presence if we're well rested and also just don't have as much urgency around what we're doing cool i definitely feel like there's like a rest revolution happening my partner is so big on just like being and not doing you know which i think is amazing but i think also sometimes rest it just it comes under such a big umbrella of things that we could do would you like, yeah, um, let us know about some of the practices that you use in order to actually rest? Because I feel like some people may think of rest as like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I'll just like Netflix and chill. But how much of that is actually resting our mind, you know, and really allowing that our body to, to, to um, come back to its natural state? Mm hmm yeah, I would say Netflix and chill probably doesn't cut it. <laughs> um, yeah, well, my favorite thing to do is work with herbal allies. So I recently um, put together this potion that's um, California poppy and milky oats sweetened with some honey. And um, California poppy is like one of my favorite herbs for sleep. It just really, it doesn't work for everyone, but it particularly really works for me. And milky oats works to restore the nervous system. So it's really wonderful for people who are dealing with burnout or exhaustion. And I'd say that these days, many of us are in that state. So it's kind of a nice universal herb. And I make a practice of taking that pretty regularly and just prioritizing getting like a full deep night's sleep. That's kind of my number one thing. Um, and yeah, like the value of good sleep really just can't be underestimated. So it's, it's really wonderful to just kind of like get ready for bed, take my herbs like an hour or two before and kind of like take them in increments leading up to bedtime and just 
kind of make it like this like crescendo to like going to sleep sort of. Mm -hmm. And you have any other recommendations of good herbs that help to aid the, um, you know, parasympathetic or sympathetic nervous system to come into a state of rest? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the biggest things first is just staying hydrated. Um, the more water we drink, the more we are activating our parasympathetic nervous system, which allows us to rest. Um, literally, like the act of swallowing something kind of alerts your body to like, oh, it's time to like to rest and digest. We can be safe and process things right now. So staying hydrated is really important. Um, I know it's winter where you are, and so it's not like as hot, but still drinking your tea and all that is good. Um, I also really want to give a shout out to chamomile. Um, it's probably my favorite rest plant just because it's so, chamomile is so multifaceted. You can use it for so many different things. You can, you can use it topically. You can use it internally for digestion and for pain. Um, but also just like a good cup of chamomile tea, like an hour before bed will really get you in the zone and I can't say enough about it. <laughs> nice. I, for a while there was my old flatmate, we were just drenching out pillows in lavender oil, which I don't know if that was the best, but it definitely made, it brings back this lavender is kind of like, reminds me of my grandma, I think, cause she used to make papuri or something, you know, like I walk in our house and it's like such an old lady kind of smell, but it's also so, like comforting in the way that a grandma often is. Yeah, that's so sweet. And it, it's so special how our nose is so connected to our memory like that. Um, I'm actually like uh, working on a workshop series. I don't know if it's okay for me to talk about that. Okay, yeah. So I'm about to teach a free workshop on um, hydrosols and aromatherapy. And that's gonna be a big part of the workshop is just talking about like the, um, connection between our sense of smell and our memory and how we can kind of utilize that for our well-being because it sounds like that experience was like that experience with your grandma was really calming and nurturing yeah even mm -hmm. though she is a bit crazy but there is like you know something you know comforting about the crazy family members in your life because um <laughs> Even though they may be a little bit, you know, obscured, there's still that kind of deep love and acceptance that's at the heart of everything. And yeah, I just remember last year just falling asleep, just thinking about her. And she's my only surviving grandparent, which I think is also probably why she came into my mind a lot more as well. But um, yeah, it was sweet, you know, and I think it's nice to also prep yourself for the dream space um, in a way to bring memories or invoke a feeling that you want, you know, and, and, and smell could be so amazing for that. Like I know for me, I've got an oil diffuser and all I burn is lemon myrtle, which is, I guess, probably like the native equivalent to lemon balm that we have here in Australia um, used traditionally for lots of different things, including teas but also very good for topical for insects for bites um but really good for calming the body and it just is like so fresh and i've just used it for the last like three years it feels like it's part of my smell mm. how do you um i guess address 
you know, herbalism in the States, like you spoke about before, it's really, it, it seems to be the most predominant. I mean, maybe Europe is also, but for Australia specifically, you know, when a lot of women and men are learning herbalism here, um, they're not learning about the native plants and actually they're learning and using plants that originate from a country that's on the other side of the globe. I guess like, do you have any, yeah, ideas about how to kind of change that? Because it feels like not only is it like quite dominant in its whiteness, but it's quite dominant in its Americanist. Um, it, I don't even think that's a word, but you know what I mean? Like it, it, it yeah. permeates and then suddenly you're dealing with people on a land who are using plants um, that have not only not come from that land, but also traveled very far to get there. So I guess what kind of like ways would you see like moving forward for herbalism for everybody on, an, on their individual continents? Mm, that's a really really great question and I think that the term bioregional herbalism is gaining more popularity and that kind of describes what you're bringing up um personally I mean like a lot of the typical western herbalism plants are either things that we brought over from Europe we I mean my white ancestors um or um things that like didn't get brought over on purpose, but kind of came here as weeds, um, like the seeds traveled. And so, yeah, a lot of those plants are, like you're saying, like very, very white originating. Um, or they do have like these indigenous roots and were used by indigenous people, but that is not necessarily acknowledged. And for me, something that's been really interesting, I don't personally work with a lot of, um, native plants just because I don't wildcraft and um, for me it feels a little strange to do a lot of like spiritual work with plants that are on land that doesn't belong to me that feels like a really complicated thing that I I'm definitely in process trying to figure out how I feel about it but I do really like to do research and um, there are like lots of different kind of like ethnobotany resources. You can look up ethnobotany for like the area that you're in. And um, also like there are like foraging handbooks. There's a lot of these kinds of resources for California, especially because the California Floristic Province um, has a lot of really unique plants and herbs. And so there's a lot of information on our botany specifically. I don't know exactly what the deal is for in Australia, um, but I'm sure there's probably some both ethnobotanical and foraging resources. And a lot of these are written from the point of view of like, we are cataloging history or um, we are giving you an idea of what you would eat if you had no grocery stores. Um, so <laughs> they're not exactly like in the vein of herbalism, but from those points of view, you can kind of start to like determine, especially if you know more about like the general practice of herbalism, it can be easier to determine like, okay, this berry that is like native here probably has these astringent properties based on what I know about this plant from this guidebook and what I know about like berries in general. So that might be one way. And then of course, getting in touch with the people who 
in Australia, like the Aboriginal groups that are there. I'm sure there's probably plenty of amazing work that they're doing around preserving their plant cultures and like getting in touch there, learning from them and definitely giving them credit for their traditions also is really important. And that's a way to pursue this as well. Cool. It's, it's interesting. What I'm hearing a lot is like actually that if we return to working with plants that have been in our lineage for a long time, like that that's a way that we can kind of teach from, but really allowing those native plants, of course, use them, but maybe not become the master and teacher of those plants, which aren't used in your lineage. And it's, it's interesting because I remember a few years ago, I went on this like, ancestral diet thing for like six weeks I, I decided to only eat what my ancestors ate and it was the best I've ever felt and the strongest I was in my body the most energy I ever had and it's funny because I'm starting to see this interesting correlation with like herbalism now is like if we have this DNA makeup that is passed through our ancestors and now we know so much more about um, the fact that we, you know, epigen epigenetics, for example, and um, things that are passed through our DNA, then it would make more sense for our health as women and men to really be allyshipping with those plants that have been deep in our lineage and that our ancestors have worked with for so many thousands of years. And I guess that's a real step towards um, decolonizing as well for everybody, um, indigenous, black, brown, white, um, is that if we return to our ancestral roots, as hard as that may be, like it's our job in this lifetime to do that work, to find those things and to integrate those practices, because that will essentially, I guess, make us to be healthy and in our integrity more than, you know, um, the other. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I really want to amplify what you just said, especially about being in integrity. Um, because I, I think this kind of goes back to your earlier question about cultural appropriation with, um, with food and with herbs. I think that the more that all of us are able to really get in touch with the fact that we do come from lineages that had healing traditions, the more that we'll kind of feel a sense of belonging and not need to take. I mean, for example, like before we started this interview, I was signing my room with some rosemary smoke. Um, and signing is the Scottish word for smoke, like using smoke. And, um, and I would never use sage for that purpose because I just, I don't come from a culture that used sage, right? There was no sage where my ancestors were from. But the smell of rosemary smoke, that is something that that carries back in my ancestry for thousands and thousands of years. I love that. And I was just having this conversation with my partner the other day about the origins of smudge and that word and um, how smudge sticks like and Palo Santo and, you know, sage and all of these things have become so trendy in amongst the alternative communities, but actually what we're not realizing is the deep destruction we're doing not only to the culture but also to the environment when there is like so many people wanting this one plant you know it ends up like palo santo is now looking to be endangered like white sage is being transported from the states over to australia in 
such large amounts when we have our own medicine here you know and that like you said you've 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 refound that medicine and and i love that you know that like signature or signing signing is is the word that you use and yeah i think it's really amazing the work that you're doing because i think it's really I mean, it's even making me step into more of an integral space with thinking like how I use things. And I think we need to be moving away from trends. I think trends are so part of the capitalist movement. They're all about like consumption consumption, and really not localization. They're like global consumption to the, to the point where if 7 billion people are all wanting the same plant what's that going to do to the diversity of this planet you know it's going to end up resulting in a lot of monocropping it's going to end up in a resulting in like degradation of the soil because there'll be a need for a plant and therefore someone will want to capitalize on that through a business so it's important for us to remember that the trends are part of this patriarchal system that has us all in this clog and this will and that that also is really a, a root cause of a lot of our environmental issues at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, uh, your thoughts on defunding the police and the way in which you think it can open up opportunities for care workers and healers, um, because this has been a big thing, not just for your country, but for my country as well. And I guess some people are conflicted by oh my god what happens if you defund the police oh god we don't have any any people to protect us but i think it's important to understand that a lot of work that the police do they're actually not trained for in your country and in 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 my country they're doing a lot of social work and they're not therapists they're doing a lot of um call outs to assist people with domestic violence and all of those sorts of things which is great but they're actually not trained in those spaces so will you talk a little bit about what you mean by opening up um those avenues for other people to step in yeah absolutely i mean like you were just saying like the cops coming into these most of these situations that they are called for um people really hope that cops will show up and do a lot of things that they aren't trained in exactly and so it would be so much better if we had i mean here in santa cruz we're talking a lot about like specific response teams like people who are specifically trained to deal with domestic violence people who are specifically trained in harm reduction and dealing with mental health crises here we have a huge um unhoused population which is of course like the sum of a lot of other really serious issues in our society um but often cops will like be the kind of like the sole people interacting with them and in santa cruz they're sort of like constantly just herding them around the city because there are a lot of laws about like how long you can sit in one place and so their job is to just constantly be moving them along and it's it's really awful it's it's very frustrating to watch um too as a civilian quote quote and so um thinking about like other ways that we could interact with um people who are in crisis and people who are in serious need by um, bringing them people who are trained and people who are able to sort of like specifically cater to their needs is a possibility that I really enjoy thinking about. 
And I think in terms of healing work, um, I like to think about how healing work can be brought into people who are recovering from these situations. I think that, you know, we have prisons, which are supposed to be rehabilitation centers. I'm doing air quotes again. Um, and the truth is that they, that is not at all the emphasis of prisons, right? I mean, here in the U.S., it's just like a huge profit industry. And what if we actually had people who were trained in healing working with people who had committed violent crimes? What if we had people trained in healing working with people who were dealing with issues of domestic violence? Both sides, both the people who are perpetrating and the people who are victims, because both people need a lot of healing resource when something like that's going on in their lives. And personally, I would love to be able to like be accessible to people who are in need like that and building that into kind of the protocol for how we respond instead of just like, oh, we're going to call the police and it's going to, we're going to get the law involved um, is, is like a lot more, I think it would be a lot more generative in our society. Yeah, I've been listening to a lot of Angela Davis um, recently. I don't know if you know her, but she is a severely fierce black feminist from America. And she does a lot on the um, abolishment of the prison system. And um, one thing that I really have been thinking about is that these systems that are put in place in both America and Australia, um, you know, they're also systems that we carry in our behavior and how we relate to one another. So if we want to get rid of crime and punishment, then how do we then also treat each other in spaces like if your partner does something wrong, are you going to embrace them with like, hey, I'm here to support you and some healing or will you turn your back on them and give them silence and show them that punishment and how do we play these things out in our relationships with our with our work colleagues with our friends with our lovers with our family you know i think even you can see from a young age the way that we deal with children it's quite um militant in a lot of ways you know that there is a strong heavy force of punishment if you do something wrong because we're trying to train and program people to be a certain way so I think like as well as understanding that the bigger system is at play, that we're all carrying like the micro systems within us, within our, the way that we're um, reacting and perpetuating that is also really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I had a professor at university that used to say like, we all have a tiny fascist in our brain. <laughs> And um, that was a joke, but I think that it's, it's true, right? I mean, right now on social media, the slogan that I'm seeing a lot is kill the cop in your head. And it is about like getting over that obsession with punishment. And that obsession with punishment comes from the trauma that we all sustain in the society that is so punishment oriented. And care work and healing work have the potential for us to like work through that trauma and get to the other side where we can respond to our lovers, to our coworkers, to anyone who is harming us with space and withholding them instead of immediately punishing and creating this whole conflict. As an activist, I have a question for you, um, you know, from one to another, but do you see the world, the future post 2020, um, 
in a hopeful way. Do you think that this year is um, highlighting what needs to be changed and do you believe that we have the people power to do that? I think it's a tricky question. <laughs> um, I think it's certainly, at least, especially in the US, really polarizing a lot of things. And that's kind of a, a good thing and a bad thing um, because there are a lot of people who have sort of recently kind of awoken to the need for abolition and for care and for all these things that we're talking about and who are kind of like coming over to this side of things and getting involved and listening to resources like this one. Um, and that's really wonderful. And I think, um, at least in the US, on the other hand, there are plenty of people who are highly reactionary, um, who are like being really put off by what's going on right now. And so I think that um, in a way, kind of, to me, it feels like the future will kind of be like, keep developing in parallel, like these, these two camps, right? Um, because I think that like the right wing in the US is kind of like, especially at, at this moment, like a force that we don't want to underestimate and that we want to keep our eye on. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, there's so much beautiful energy for care work and for mutual aid. And I've seen all of these like projects pop up even just in Santa Cruz. And like, they've just been like re-enlivened after like kind of dying off. and that's really amazing. So I think there's a lot of energy. Um, it's very volatile. And I think that it's definitely exciting to be alive at this time and to be involved in this work. And in terms of being a white ally, what does that mean to you? And how can you guys, how can you um, encourage other people to do similar things that you're doing? Or what would you recommend other people to do as strong white allies? Hmm. Well, I think that the biggest thing for me is to remember that I have a huge stake in the end of racism, in the end of prisons, in the end of police. Like, that is not something that I'm pushing for purely out of my own altruism. Just because I'm not disproportionately affected by it doesn't mean that I won't hugely benefit. Um, because the people who are really being targeted by these systems, like, you know, they are, they're my friends, they're my coworkers, they're my community members. And like the saying goes, like, no one is free until everyone is. I am just as implicated in this system and I have just as much to gain in a very different way, but still just as much. And so I think remembering that and really keeping in touch with like, what is my stake in this work is really important because I don't want to come at this from the point of view of like, I'm doing this work to be good. I'm doing this work to help other people. I think that that like that saviorism mentality, um, first of all, isn't really sustainable because that doesn't help you really connect with the purpose of the work. Um, and also it's just kind of wrong. <laughs> it's wrong. I, I don't think it's ethical to show up in that way. Um, so yeah, just being connected to your purpose and your stake in the work. That's probably the number one thing. I like that. Yeah, I think um, there is a 
misguided point of view that that um, other people need to be helped and that we're the people to do that. And there's like a, a great quote about a, a monkey that sits in a tree and looks down at a goldfish and sees the goldfish and because of the monkey's life, assumes the goldfish is drowning. So goes down to the river, picks the goldfish out, places it on the side of the bank and thinks, oh my God, I've just saved that goldfish's life and the goldfish dies. And I see this repeated pattern happen with colonization. You know, it's quite a metaphor for the way that missionaries went into both the United States and Australia and assumed that under the doctrine of discovery, which is a a doctrine that came out of Europe that says that basically any um, land and inhabitants that were not Christian were to be overthrown and Christianized essentially, you know, and perhaps this was coming from a place of thinking we're going to save them with this a powerful religion that will connect them higher to a, a purpose and a, and, and a spirit, but actually without acknowledging that these very sophisticated intrinsic indigenous people already had their own spirituality and religion. So I think it's really important when we're, we're thinking that we're going to go in to help the other, whether it be sex workers, whether it be indigenous people, whether it be um, queer, folk whether it be um, black or brown people that like if we're not coming from a direct experience with that who are we to assume that we have the right answers mm-hmm. so thanks for pointing that out I think I use that quote a lot because it's really strong in in a lot of the work that I do and it really highlights as well like how we can come with our own ideas around experiences and really project that onto other people and that may not be theirs yeah um maddie i have one more question to ask you before we wrap up but is there anything else that you want to talk to or add that we may have missed in this chat um i do want to say one thing and it's that you know i i'm here in this like profession of healing work and you know, often and under this capitalist society, we are all made to feel like less than, like there's something broken that needs to be fixed. And usually that's by buying something. Um, But even in like the realm of health and wellness, that can kind of be invoked, um, you know, to promote people's like sales or whatever. Um, it's, It's like a dangerous thing. And it's really toxic, and we need to stay away from it. So I just want to put this note in that for anyone who's listening, that like that full self, you already are that full self. And like working with plants or doing other healing work, that can bring out a new expression of it. But I just want to like reaffirm that we're all we're all good. Yeah, I think that's important as well, you know, to reiterate is that you have everything you need inside of you. And of course, it's great to have um, allies, friendships, mentors, but really to not fall into the space of thinking that you're broken because we all come whole, you know, and it's just a matter of us taking the time to reconnect with ourselves, really, to, to make sure that we're spending that time, like you said, to to rest or to do things that remind us of why we're here on the earth rather than always having to think three to four steps ahead of us and living out of the present moment. Mm-hmm. 
I have one last question. It's just a question that I ask everybody. So um, the podcast is called It Takes Courage to Tell the Truth, um, based in, I guess, breaking these systems which teach us that we don't have power inside of us. And um, really coming from female-led interviews is important to me because I want this to reach women um, near and far. And so what is the biggest truth that you have discovered in this human experience? Mm, wow. Um, probably just how important it is to be soft. How important and also how impactful it is to be soft. Yeah, soft with yourself, soft with each other. And the world is so soft with us. The earth, it's like really, really holding us. So softness. Thank mm. you. Thank you for your time and for sharing. Um, I really appreciate you reaching out. And it was really beautiful to chat with you. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. <laughs>